This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Why make people suffer for no reason when there's an alternative? It's been almost a year since Dr. Donald Lowe passed away and left behind a passionate video pleading for Canadians to embrace physician-assisted death. Since then, his wife, Maureen Taylor, has continued to fight for his cause. She was part of another push to pass the law earlier this week, and she'll join me a little later on. Plus, these days, human interaction often takes a backseat to our smartphones, computers, and television sets. Author and journalist Susan Pinker says this is taking a toll on our health. She'll tell us why face-to-face contact can make us happier, healthier, and smarter. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Canadians want a national seniors' care strategy, and they're prepared to make it a ballot issue. That was the message from a joint CARP and Canadian Medical Association roundtable held in Charlottetown this week to coincide with the Premier's meeting. CARP's Susan Eng says Zoomers are demanding national standards. I think that we have to give ordinary voters some hope that their vote is going to make some change. And so we have to do two things. We have to show that the politicians are, in fact, paying attention to both the Canadian Medical Association and CARP to make it clear that this is a concerted effort, not just an individual whim. Secondly, they need to realize that their vote is going to matter because it's going to be at the ballot box that actually convinces the politicians to act even within the current election cycle. The fire that killed 32 people at a senior's residence in a small Quebec town this past January will be the focus of an inquiry called by that province's government. The inquiry will be headed by longtime coroner Cyril Delage. The owner of the senior's home called for the inquiry two weeks ago. Roch Bernier said people have a right to know the real story behind the January 23rd blaze. He is part of a $3.8 million lawsuit against the town of Lille Verte. The suit alleges the community failed to implement emergency plans which might have lowered the death toll. Here's more evidence on findings we've brought you before. Volunteering is good for your health. A team at Baycrest Health Sciences examined 73 studies published over the last 45 years involving adults over 50 who were in formal volunteering roles. They found an association with reduced symptoms of depression, better overall health, fewer functional limitations, and greater longevity. They also found that the most benefits may come from moderate volunteering, about two to three hours a week. 
Neil Young and his wife Peggy are the latest celebrity couple to shine a spotlight on the growing trend of gray divorce. This week, they announced they are calling it quits after 36 years of marriage. Peggy was a frequent collaborator in Neil's music, an inspiration for many of his songs and a backup singer in his live performances. More recently, she's explored her own singing career, releasing three solo albums. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. I'm just frustrated not being able to have control of my own life, not being able to make the decision for myself when enough is enough. That's Dr. Donald Lowe talking about assisted dying eight days before his own death from a brain tumor. That was almost a year ago, and his impassioned plea ignited a national discussion. His widow, Maureen Taylor, still has trouble listening to it, but she's taken up the cause in his memory. Maureen visited our studios after advocates for the right to die filed their arguments for the upcoming Supreme Court case. If Donald was aware of how his case has reinvigorated the entire debate around assistant dying, what do you think he would make of it? I know Don would be humble, so that's what I'm going to be, first of all. I I think that I hope that we added to the debate, but lots of things have been happening that probably would have happened regardless. But I know that he'd be, first of all, um, really pleased with the fact that even though an election was called in Quebec, they resurrected Bill 52 there, still has the agreement of all three parties, and now it's the law. So it's going to be interesting to see them work out the details of that and see what response the federal government will have, if any. But that would really have made him happy. And I, I think also um, he'd be so happy about what the Canadian Medical Association did recently, where 91% of those who attended their annual general meeting voted in favor of allowing doctors to follow their conscience when it comes to whether or not to participate in assisted dying in areas where it's legal to do so. How important do you think that is having some buy-in from the Canadian Medical Association? You know, it blows my mind that they were so adamant in telling us before that they would never change their policy and this would always be ethically wrong. Now, it opens up the possibility of allowing doctors who wish to to participate. So to me, it's just huge. And do you have any sense of what percentage of doctors actually... Would Would. engage in it? Well, I know that when the CMA asked that question, it's more than a year ago now. And I think it was 24, almost a quarter of them said yes. And I know that the folks at Dying with Dignity felt that that was actually very promising because... Of course, we don't need a quarter of all physicians across Canada to participate. Um, The numbers of people who are going to actually want to access this will be very small. And we'd want them to be the physicians who have either a specialty in end-of-life care or have that close relationship with the patient, like the family doctors. That number is fine. We can work with that number. We don't actually have to go out there and lobby doctors who don't feel comfortable doing it to do it. The way things stand now, the Supreme Court will be hearing oral arguments in October. What do you think has to be done between now and then? 
the MP Stephen Fletcher has said, wouldn't it be nice if for a change Parliament got ahead of the Supreme Court on some of these things and didn't pretend uh, that there weren't some decisions to make? So what what would be ideal would be for our government to come forward with with laws that may look very much like what Quebec has with Bill 52. Um uh, because a lot of work went into that, and perhaps we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, but knowing that that won't happen, what, <laughs> right. what should we do instead? I know that um, certain hospice and palliative care organizations, at least in Toronto, have reached out to me to tell me that they're not waiting for the CMA to give them guidance, and they're not waiting for the government. They're already having the discussion. What are we going to do when the Supreme Court strikes the law down. How will we uh, ant- respond to patients who ask for this? In general, uh, how much more acceptable or not acceptable is the whole concept, do you think, to average people, Canadians? There's been a little backlash this week, I'll, I'll tell you. on what, what kind of a backlash? Well... Uh, there's been some comments on Twitter that I'm an entitled white privileged person and my husband got exempt. Of course, he got exemplary palliative care. And why are, why am I getting all the attention and not the people who aren't privileged? And and they're lashing out and I'm not going to take it personally. You know, I just I understand that there's suffering out there. So getting beyond that, um, most of the most of the feedback, as you know, from average Canadians has been really positive. I think that we've had a great conversation in this last year, and I, I really think the Supreme Court is going to just put the icing on the cake for us. Into the mix, there's going to be an election soon, right. and, and perhaps it's not something that the sitting government wants to take on before the election and I want to say about the idea of a federal election that I am somewhat disappointed in the other parties. I know that the Liberal Party at their convention voted to make assisted dying part of their official platform, but the leader has avoided talking about this, hasn't told us how he feels or what he would, whether he would whip the vote if it came to that. Um, and the same with the NDP. I, I really if that was my only issue in voting in the next federal election, I'm not sure I would know who I need to vote for. Okay. Maureen Taylor, thanks so much. Thank you, Libby. The Supreme Court of Canada will hear oral arguments in October. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Do you email your colleagues instead of walking to their desks? Spend more time in front of a screen than chatting with your loved ones? Author Susan Pinker says... We need more face-to-face contact in our lives, and it will make us healthier and happier. She'll join me next. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. It's a drawback of the digital age. We're spending more and more time with our screens, less and less with each other. In her new book, The Village Effect, Award-winning author and psychologist Susan Pinker argues that we're hardwired for face-to-face contact, and we need it to promote happiness, succeed in business, ward off disease, and live longer. I had some FaceTime with Susan when she dropped by our Liberty Village studios to explain how to create our own village effect. The village effect is the kind of social contact that we need to thrive and survive as humans. And are we losing that? A lot of people say we are. I wouldn't say that we're losing it, but I think we're losing our way a little bit because of the excitement of the digital revolution. 
Explain. Well, I think not all social contact is created equal. And so when you connect face-to-face with somebody, or even if you're in the same room with them, there's a biological cascade of events that happens that provides some resilience, some immunity. It helps us feel good in the here and now, and it protects us into the future. What a lot of people say is that, especially for younger generations who always seem to be in their devices, they are losing that. I'm not sure I would pin this on younger generations. I think we're all guilty of that to some extent. It's really exciting what our devices can do for us. They're really great at finding information, but they're not that good at establishing trust between people. They're not great at enhancing empathy and building community. Um, They're not really well suited to strengthening the human connection. I often see people, and they can be at some fabulous gathering, a party or whatever, and they are in their device connecting with people who are not there. And they never seem to be engaged with the place and the people where they're at. Yeah, the here and now. They're missing out for sure. I think it's a, it's a phenomenon of you've heard of FOMO, fear of missing out. Well, I think they are missing out because they're afraid that something better is happening elsewhere. And, you know, really you can't beat what's happening, you know, in the face-to-face, especially um, not only because it's instrumental to our health and happiness, but because there, there are so many other reasons. It enhances our ability to learn new things, for example. But it's transformed everything. For instance, it's transformed expectations at work. You know, now you have to be available basically all the time. If you don't answer an email that comes to you in the evening, uh, that's not going to be great for your career. Well, I think there's ways to manage that. And I think that uh, one of the counterintuitive notions that I explore in a chapter in the book is that actually face-to-face contact in the business world trumps the digital in many respects, because you can't build trust without seeing somebody. And if you don't have contact with that person, your relationship decays and you'll be replaced with somebody else. Well, there has been a huge amount of research showing how important social contact is to well-being. It is a critical factor in longevity. There's all this research on centenarians, and that's one of the key things. And also uh, some research on health uh, that... Uh, especially for men, it's important to be married, that you recover from illness better if you have a network. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. What's really surprising is that having an integrated social network, meaning not just close contacts, like not just your spouse, not just your best friend, but other types of contacts as well, people you might meet through church or synagogue or the tennis club or your neighborhood association, All of those contacts together are very protective, and they're so protective that they predict better how long you will live. They're better predictors than whether you're obese, whether you have a drinking problem, whether you have a -a pack-a-day smoking problem, or whether you live in a very highly polluted industrial area. So if somebody takes a group of people and follows them from now into the future, 15 years from now, your social contacts will be the best predictor of who will still be alive in 15 years. What I found very interesting about that, that I was not so much aware of, is that you pointed out the importance of uh, sort of looser and more distant contacts as well as the people, you know, your real friends. Yeah, and, and, and that is surprising. 
And that's one of the, I guess, aspects of our social environments that's falling away a little bit in concert with our love affair with digital devices. So that there's, I guess, an illusion, I think, that's quite pervasive that if you have whatever 300 Facebook friends or so many people on your phone contact list, that these are actually part of your community but they're, they're not. Who is part of your community is the person that you might see at the library once a week if you go to the library or the people you connect with when you do exercise at the Y or at the health club. And these people play an extremely important role. And because our lives are mar- migrating online, we're losing a lot of those contacts. How are those kind of looser contacts important? I think they're a cipher for how involved you are in your community. You're getting out there and you're doing things and you're meeting people as opposed to just sitting alone in front of a screen. So you're right. It's, of course, the people who are close to us who are tremendously important. And those networks are decreasing, we know, over the last 30 years. The people that we can really depend on, that we discuss our most intimate concerns with. It used to be in the mid-80s, it used to be three people were the number of people you had that you could lean on. Now people say it's less than two And that includes your spouse and your family members. So I think that's a very small village, too small. What do you hope the result of this book will be? There is, I guess, a crisis of loneliness right now that nobody is really talking about. And actually, it's not among the oldest of our population. It's among the middle-aged. They're the loneliest in North America. And I think this is an area where... I'd like people to take stock, but also to reach out a little bit more. Okay, Susan Pinker, thanks so much. Thank you, Libby. The Village Effect, How Face-to-Face Contact Can Make Us Healthier and Happier, is published by Random House Canada. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. If you head down to Toronto's harbourfront this weekend, you'll hear some excellent klezmer music, among many other offerings at the 10th Biennial Ashkenaz Festival. In just a moment, we'll hear music from one of the featured performers. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, it's only a play, but what a cast. Matthew Broderick, Nathan Lane, Stockard Channing, and F. Murray Abraham star in an update of Terrence McNally's 1982 comedy. It's only a play is in previews at the Schoenfeld Theater. In Chicago, a world-famous icon of the Art Institute's celebrated Impressionist collection is back on display. Paris Street, Rainy Day by Gustave Kaibot was taken off view for a time to be restored. To London, England, where My Night with Reg is getting rave reviews. The play is set in 1994 when AIDS is sending tremors of fear through a world of gay young men. But the themes are more inclusive. It's described as a comedy laced with real darkness and grief. My Night with Reg is at the Donmar Warehouse. And in Venice, the exhibition The Illusion of Light explores the way light has been used in art since the Renaissance. It's at the Palazzo Grassi. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Day Book. 
This weekend, the Ashkenaz Festival is on in Toronto. It's Canada's largest festival of global Jewish music and culture. It's the 10th anniversary of the festival, and hundreds of performers and artists have come to Toronto to showcase their talents in music, dance, visual art, theatre, and more. It all takes place at Harbourfront Centre, and most of the events are free. There's still plenty of time to check it out for yourself. The festival runs until around 10 p.m. tomorrow night. For more information and the complete schedule, visit ashkenazfestival.com. Right now, we'll hear the Toronto-based, self-described Balkan Klezmer Gypsy Party Punk Superband that always steals the show. Here's the Lemon Bucket Orchestra. That was the Lemon Bucket Orchestra, one of the many acts in the Ashkenaz Festival, running until tomorrow night at Toronto's Harbourfront Centre. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Louise Neimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Vandriel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.